0: Hello and welcome to Homestead Hens and Honey, a beekeeping, chicken keeping and general homesteading podcast. I'm your host Gemma and this week I am reposting one of my earliest episodes that covers all things Varroa mite. I go over what this nasty little parasite is, how it transferred from the Asian honeybee Apis serrana to our beloved European honeybee Apis mellifera, its method of transmission into the US, testing methods and available treatments. I'm choosing to repost this episode for two reasons. One, I've been really busy with family since I got back from vacation, followed by a series of house and animal issues. And I really just haven't had the time to put together the episode that I had planned for this week. And honestly, I'm a little frazzled. I'm still playing catch up, i'm pleased to say that the house and animal issues are sold for now touch wood but it did take a lot of time and energy and the second reason is that as we move into fall at least those of us in the west this is the time that you are likely going to see varroa mite levels increase and sometimes this increase can be quite alarming so i hope that this episode will act as a refresher course for beekeepers or an introductory guide for anyone who's new to beekeeping as we move into autumn. I just have a couple of notes on this episode. First the sound quality is not a hundred percent although I have done my best to modify that so please bear with me and I thank you for your patience. At one point during the episode I'm discussing oxalic acid vaporization and I rather confidently state that OA vapor will kill baby bees. And when I was re-listening to this episode during editing I was confused by why past me was so confident stating this because current me wasn't sure that this was true. So I did a little fact checking and I suspect what happened is that past me got a little muddled. So oxalic acid is not recommended for use when the colony is raising brood because it cannot penetrate capped brood cells, meaning that there could be plenty of nasty reproducing varroa mites in said cells that are evading treatment. Having said that, however, I did find a paper that indicates that oxalic acid is in fact toxic to bee larva. So past me ended up being correct, but I still wanted to clarify. And I will link to that paper in the episode description and on my website. I will also be linking to the original blog post that accompanied this episode, episode number four, so that you can see everything written down if you need to refer back to anything or if you want to save it and refer back to it in future for reminders about anything to do with Varroa. And on a kind of short personal note, Listening to myself during this episode from almost two years ago I couldn't help but think of Family Guy's Hugh Grant impression. Oh um well I oh goodness I'm just so charmingly befuddled and I really hope that I sound more confident and less like a British stereotype these two years on. So thank you so much for listening. I apologise for the repost. I really do think that it is important information, however, and I have to admit I'm pretty proud of it. I think I covered a lot of the really pertinent information. So I hope you enjoy it. I hope it uh, benefits you in your fight against this terrible parasite. And I will be back in two weeks with something different. So thank you again for listening and let's go on to the episode. So on today's topic, it is the Varroa mite. Um, it's very difficult to be a beekeeper today and not come across something to do with Varroa, be it literature that you're reading or people at your um, local beekeeping clubs complaining about, you know, dealing with this pest. A lot of people talk about the world of beekeeping before Varroa. And after and we are very deeply in the after and it's one of those things that you can't really avoid and you need to know about it because you need to know how it's going to affect your hives and what you can do about it so first we should probably identify what is a varroa mite well I turned to a book called honey bee biology and beekeeping by Dewey M Karen with Lawrence John Connor for more information on this subject The book is a little bit dated now so there is some new information about mites that won't be in this book that said it's still a very very good resource Um, it has a concise description of the mite in question as well as different treatment options and although there are some new treatment options a lot of what we do now is um still what was being used at the time of this printing so i do recommend this book it's a great resource in general And I will, of course, um, link to all the resources that I've used for this episode on my blog. So do check that out. So the Varroa mite, the Varroa destructor, um, it used to be called the Varroa jacobsoni, but it's now been identified that these are actually two different species. So the one that we deal with is the Varroa destructor. It's a large bodied reddish brown mite and it is visible to the naked eye it's active on adult bees and it burrows between abdominal segments so you may or may not ever see one on a bee um what I have heard and again just to remind everyone this is my first year keeping bees I am not saying that I am an expert on this topic everything that I'm sharing today comes from uh, different resources of people who've been doing this a lot longer than me and um, from scientific studies, and I will, of course, offer all citations. And um, again, those will be in my blog post, and I'm going to do my best to point them out as I talk to you today. But um, what I have heard from beekeepers is that if you are ever doing an inspection and you can visibly see Varroa mites on the top portion of a bee's body so just kind of hanging out on their thorax or their abdomen you probably have a very severe mite problem because mites will go first to those gaps in the abdominal segments um, and so you really shouldn't be seeing them on your bees and if you are it means that you have a very severe infestation The interesting thing about the Varroa mite is that only the females of this species are actually parasitic, the males are basically just there for reproduction, they will mate and then die. So a mated female mite will enter a cell shortly before it's capped and she will burrow down and hide in the bee food that's at the base of the cell. Female mites actually lack antenna and eyes, so it's believed that they use a combination of touch, heat and smell to target their hosts and not just to target them, but to know that that cell is going to be capped, um, which is, I find that fascinating. Within 60 hours of entering the cell, the female mite lays her first egg, which is always male. After another 30 hours, she lays fertile female eggs and when those hatch, the daughter mites then mate with their brother. So it's pretty gross and incestuous. The Varroa mite prefers drone, which if you remember are the male bees, cells, as they have a longer capped cell period as the drone is a larger bee. And this allows her to produce more daughters. So usually if a female mite goes into a female worker bee cell, um, in the time it takes for the um, pupa to develop and the cell to be uncapped as it hatches, she'll produce between one to three daughters. But in a drone cell, she can produce up to five, which it makes a huge difference and that's why she prefers it. So when they're in the cell, the female mites pierce the exoskeleton of the bee pupa and feed off its fat tissue stores. Now in older books, including the honey bee biology that I mentioned, you will see them saying that mites feed off bee blood. And this was what people believed. But um, Dr. Uh, Samuel Ramsey has studied this and has produced an incredible paper that I believe is part of his PhD, um, which demonstrates that it's actually the fat tissue stores that are being fed off of. Um, And that is an important distinction because it actually helps explain a lot of things um, that happen to bees that are infested with mites, which I'll get into later so an infected pupa will usually emerge but it can suffer from issues like shortened abdomens misshapen wings and legs less body weight less overall size and reduced hemolymph volume a heavily infested pupa might actually die in the cell and just never emerge um so after the male mite has participated in his disgusting incestuous orgy with his own sisters he drops dead the female mites will eventually emerge from the cell attached to either the adult bee that emerges or one passing nearby and they'll either go off to infest more pupa within the same hive or catch a ride with an adult bee and potentially infect a, another hive because of something called colony drift which is basically where a worker bee is out and about it comes across a hive it is not its own hive and during certain times of year the bees will um, just welcome that worker bee in because that worker bee is carrying nectar or pollen. So that other hive is kind of like, oh wait, you're not from here. Oh, you have gifts, come on in. Um, This is more common in like, you know, during some kind of flow, like a pollen or a nectar flow. Um, And it's less common at this time of year when the bees have um, less to work with and they're quite aggressive to um, invaders. So going back to the mite, when the mite punctures the bee's exoskeleton um, either in the pupa stage or as an adult they either introduce viruses and disease or they make the bee vulnerable to viruses and disease what we do know for sure is that the immune system of the bee is definitely affected by the mite To quote Thomas D. Seeley, who is a researcher of honeybees in the U.S., and anything that he has written is absolutely brilliant, and I recommend you look him up. He states, quote, When a colony has a high mite load, the worker bees it produces start their lives with such high virus titers that they are too sick to work, end quote. So this is what leads to something you might have heard of called colony collapse. And this is identified um, by let's say you come out to your hive and you find almost no adult bees in there there's no sign that they swarmed you'd see no swarm cells the queen is still there but almost all the adult bees are gone and there's just a very small amount of usually spotty brood and by spotty i mean the laying pattern not that the brood has spots on it Um, This is something you might have heard where people were talking back in the 90s about the vanishing honeybee uh, because people couldn't understand where those adult bees had gone. Well, it's now looking like what happened is they were so sick that they were just off foraging and just dropping dead and never returning back. So the Varroa mite, if you look into it, actually originated in mainland Eastern Asia, which begs the question, how did it get transmitted almost globally because at this time only one continent is free of the varroa mite and that is australia and not to be pessimistic but a lot of people believe that it will eventually be introduced there just because of we have kind of shoddy bioprotocols when it comes to um, invasive insects which is why there's such a spread of them so how did it get transmitted well, once again, I turn to Thomas D. Seeley. Um, here's a new book that came out. It's called The Lives of Bees The Untold Story of the Honeybee in the Wild. And um, this actually deals with the Varroa and has a very convenient timeline of how this mite spread. So, the following information that details the history is all from Dr. Seeley's book. So, as I said, this mite originated in Asia where it had a stable host parasite relationship with the asian or eastern honeybee apis serrana and by stable host parasite relationship what i mean is that it would parasitize this kind of honeybee but not to the levels where it was destroying the colonies because if you think about it it's a parasite that kills its host without some additional benefit to the parasite is going to have trouble over time So what we're seeing with our bees dying out is because this is an introduced invasive pest they didn't co-evolve. So the Asian honeybee the Apis serrana is the one that has the stable host parasite uh, relationship. In the early 1900s the European slash Western honeybee, our honeybee, became a host for this parasite after movement of the European honeybee from Western Russia and Ukraine into the Eastern region of Russia. And this caused an overlap in range between the two different honeybee species, which exposed our honeybee friends to the Varroa mite. In the 1950s to 60s, sometime around then, Russian beekeepers spread Varroa to Europe through um, shipping queens that were infested um, and infestations of Varroa were first reported in Bulgaria in 1967, in Germany in 1971 and Romania in 1975. From here it spread to North Africa around 1975-1976, through hundreds of colonies that were sent actually as part of a foreign aid program from Romania and Bulgaria. So it was part of potentially a beneficial program but actually it ended up introducing Varroa into North Africa. In 1971 or thereabouts uh, Varroa reached South America due to the movement of bees from Japanese beekeepers into Paraguay. Brazil was affected in 1972, although the transmission route hasn't been clearly identified at this time. Um, We do know that Varroa entered North America via two potential routes. The first one was through Florida. Um, In the mid 80s, it's believed that the smuggling of Brazilian queens who were infested um, brought Varroa into Florida and then from there through North America, Um, and also swarms of Africanized honeybees that were coming off cargo ships. There are documents that indicate that there were eight ships that came to port with swarms of Africanized honeybees on them between 1983 to 1989, and it is recorded that these swarms had varroa mite infestations. The second route into North America was through Texas. This is Uh, This happened in the 1990s, and once again, it was a swarm of Africanized honeybees that came north through Mexico. Now, before I continue discussing the Varroa mite, there's an interesting note that I found out about Africanized honeybees. So you might be familiar with these bees from various horror stories of them like swarming and killing animals and children and even grown adults. And they are famously aggressive and southern states do struggle with keeping their genetics out of the colonies. But Africanized honeybees appear to be more resistant to Varroa than our European honeybee. According to a paper that I found which is called Reproductive Biology of Varroa Destructor in Africanized Honeybees by Koldran et al published in 2009. This looked at varroa levels and transmission in tropical areas of South America. Well according to this paper the apiculture of Africanized honeybees has been minimally affected by varroa. Now what the paper goes on to detail is that um, Africanized honeybees seem to have increased levels of hygienic behaviour which is both a grooming behaviour where they detect the mites on themselves and remove them but in particular they detect mites even in capped brood cells and will pull open that cell take out the infested pupa kill it and then kill any other mites that they find in that cell. But what I found particularly interesting about this paper is that Varroa mites have lower levels of fertility when feeding on Africanized honeybees. So this seems to indicate that there's some level of natural resistance within the biology of the Africanized honeybee itself, which is incredibly exciting because potentially there's a pathway there into learning how to help our... European honeybee become more resistant. Um, and I have linked this paper on my blog. Um, I actually was able to find the full paper and I have linked it so you can go there, you can read it. It's a really, really good read. I do recommend it. Okay, so I've given you kind of a background what a varroa mite is, um, what it's doing to our sweet little bees, why it's bad. So, what do you need to do as a beekeeper? Well, the first thing we should talk about is how to test for varroa mites because the chances are that you have them but you need proof of that because you don't just want to treat without knowing if you need to so there are different ways that you can sample Um, historically they did something called brood sampling Um, this involved basically uncapping brood cells preferably those of drones and you would just count the number of brood that had mites on them Um, this would then give you sort of a rough percentage of infestation within that colony the problem with this is that um the percentage of the pupa affected doesn't actually correlate to the total mite load present in a hive. So this is not a reliable method of testing. And in fact, um, I've never had a teacher mention it to me. I only heard about this through my research um, and particularly reading books that are a little bit older. So there are other forms of testing that we do. Um, is the alcohol wash and the sugar shake. And I should say as well before I describe what these are that um, I was taught that mite testing is recommended from April all the way through October. Um, some people do it monthly as soon as the colony starts to build up again in the spring. I don't think there's any problem with that personally. I mean, I don't know. I haven't done it myself. I started testing in April. Oh, I'm sorry, I got my bees in May, so I started testing from the minute I got my bees and I'm still testing now. Um, but if you want to do it monthly once the colonies build in the spring, I think you should absolutely go ahead so there's like I said there's two main methods of testing there's the alcohol wash now to do this you you get three hundred bees and um, you're probably thinking well how how do I get three hundred bees So <laughs> what you do is um 300 bees is roughly half a measuring cup. So you get frames with brood on it, and preferably you want frames with open and sealed brood. Um, But you know, work with what you have, and you bang those frames into some kind of container, grab your half cup, scoop the bees up, and, and then kind of shake the cup until it's about level. And then you can put that either into some kind of container Or I have an easy or quick check mic uh, kit that I will um, post a photo of on the blog and on the Instagram. And um, you just dump the bees in there and then you cover them with alcohol. Um, Not vodka, sadly, or wine, but um, isopropyl, you know, rubbing alcohol. I use 70%. I've seen people give different percentage values of what works. I think most of them will work you don't want to dilute it too much but you should be fine with um it being slightly diluted and then you shake you know shake the container now in the mite quick check kit it has like a little strainer basket in it so you can just boop pull out the strainer all the dead bees are in there dump those look at the container with the alcohol and you can count the number of mites because the mites get knocked off and killed so the benefit of this method is that it's apparently quite accurate um, it's some people say it's actually the most accurate sampling method the downside is that you're killing bees But something to keep in mind about this i mean none of us like to kill bees if i squish a bee by accident i'm i i do not like it but it's important to do this for the overall health of the colony and if i can i'm going to use one of my teachers <laughs> Um, equations here so apiary dave taught me this bee math which is basically if we take an average size colony all right 300 bees equals 0.005 percent to 0.015 percent of the population of that colony if you did one sample a month from april to october that's 2100 bees which averages out to about 10 bees a day And a healthy queen can lay between one to two thousand eggs per day so that gives you a little bit of perspective no one wants to kill bees but if you do have to for something that's this important it is just a tiny tiny fraction of the population so the other option is the sugar shake and a lot of people like this method because it doesn't kill bees once again it's a 300 bee sample you add the bees to a jar with two to three tablespoons of powdered sugar You shake them and the mites are supposed to be dislodged by the sugar and fall off the bees. So then what you do is you upend everything out onto a white surface and return the bees to the hive and you go through the dumped sugar and you count the mites. So again the benefit is it doesn't kill the bees although I'm sure they're not happy about being banged around like that and covered in sugar although they do lick the sugar off afterwards which they do probably appreciate but the downside is that I have heard um, that it can be hard to do correctly and that means that you could end up with inaccurate mite counts which is definitely a problem because if you're not getting an accurate mite count you might not treat when you need to Now for both of these methods, it's really important that you identify your queen and you place her somewhere safe because you do not wanna include her in your sample, particularly if you're going with the alcohol wash method. Um, And this is a risk because you're going into the brood chamber, that's where the queen is. So please, 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 please identify your queen, put her somewhere safe, and then go ahead and do the testing. So in terms of mite counts, Here's a general guideline. So in general, so kind of throughout the year, six to nine mites per 300 bees is normal. In the spring, you should see lower numbers, three mites to 300 bees. And in late summer, you'll see an increase, nine mites to 300 bees. What if you do all this and you get no mites? Well, it doesn't actually mean that you don't have varroa it just means that the level is undetectable for the time being so you want to keep testing now if you have let's say 21 to 100 bees or uh, 21 mites to 100 bees which is 63 mites to 300 bees you have what is called a mite bomb and that colony it's already dead you can't save it now treating it is not going to help it's a dead hive it just hasn't stopped breathing yet um ideally if you have uh come across the fact that you have a mite bomb you should actually just destroy that whole colony right now before um it spreads forever to your neighbors um something i'd like to point out is Um, sometimes you'll see people talking about using uh, sticky boards for counting mites or just visually inspecting a bee or the bees in their colony. And this is not an accurate measurement of mite load. Don't be that guy. Do a proper test so you know what you're working with. So let's say that you've gone out and you've chosen your testing method, either the sugar shake or the alcohol wash, and you do have mites. And you think that you want to treat them Uh, you think that the threshold levels are where you should treat them what kind of treatment is there and there is quite a lot of stuff on the market right now and um i want to clarify something before i start um i am going to be talking about treatments in terms of synthetic chemical control and naturally occurring chemical control so the reason i'm making this distinction is that a lot of people talk about things like chemical treatments versus natural treatments. But what does that actually mean? Um, It's already biased wording because if someone gives you a choice between a chemical or something natural, you're gonna say, oh, I want the natural thing, right? Because natural equals good or natural equals safe. But that's not true. Um, It's also misleading because everything is broken down into chemicals, absolutely everything. So. When someone sets up a, um, a dynamic of chemical versus natural, you're already off to a rough start. So when I say um, synthetic, I'm talking man-made chemicals versus naturally occurring things that are found in nature. And to give you an idea of what I mean when I say natural doesn't equal safe... A popular, naturally occurring treatment for for Roa is oxalic acid. And this is a substance that is so dangerous that it can burn your bare skin and that you need a respirator mask when you vaporise it. Does that sound safe to you? No. So I'm going to be making this different. um, I'm going to be saying that this is the difference here that we have the synthetic human created and those derived from naturally occurring sources but that is not to give them any kind of judgment about which is safer or which is more natural than the other so after all that blathering um the synthetic treatments are um It's a chemical compound called amitraz. And you'll often see this on the market as apivar. That seems to be the most popular one. It's a miticide. It kills mites. Um, And it it comes in these like plastic strips that you put in the hive. It's usually two strips to a deep brood box. And it's a six-week treatment because how it works is that um, it's a slow release. And as the bees walk through... It, they transmit the chemical throughout the hive um, it is listed as being up to 99 percent effective in killing varroa you must remove your honey supers first now here's something that i thought was interesting studies have shown that there's no harmful residues left behind by this chemical but it's still recommended that you remove the honey supers if those honey supers are for human consumption which really makes me wonder exactly what we're testing for when we talk about harmful residues being left behind um or whether i don't know transmission into honey works differently than transmission into the rest of the wax that the bees are using or the wood of the hive Um, this is something i kind of want to dig into a little bit more but anyway you know always read the label the label says take your honey supers off so do it um it has a two-year storage if you do not open the containers, which is good. Um, and I actually use this one, um, and I have liked it so far. What I will say, though, is that um, Varroa are developing a resistance to miticides as a whole. So it's really important to not overuse any treatment, but particularly something like Amitraz. Um, you want to test See what your mite levels are and then treat. I would never recommend using Amitraz as a preventative. You're not, I would not say just put it in there without testing. You need to test. You need to know what you're looking at. And the reason why is it's, it's this whole issue that people used to have about, oh, just give me antibiotics for a cold and then wondered why we now have superbugs that antibiotics can't touch and it's because if you over prescribe something or if you overuse something you diminish its efficacy in the future so keep that in mind when you are considering apivar as a treatment in terms of naturally occurring chemical compounds um, you have a couple of different options actually so the first one is formic acid um, one of the most popular brands you'll see is Mitaway Quick Strips that uses formic acid. This is a natural acid found in honey and in bees. It has up to a 95% kill rate. Once again, it's strips and it's recommended to use two per hive body. But with Apivar, the strips kind of go down long ways into the frame. With uh, Mita side, you lay them across the tops of the, uh, the frames and actually if you've ever used this or if you've seen someone use it the bees do not like this product at all in the sense that you put the strips down and they just all flee away from it they do not want to be around it they do not want to touch it part of the reason for that might be that it has an extremely strong scent and it's very important that you don't lean directly over your container of formic acid when you open it Um, in fact if you can I would recommend wearing a mask and opening the tub only when you are outside near your hives because it is extremely strong people have reported dizziness um, if they accidentally breathe some of this in Uh, this is also a product that can burn exposed skin so you need to wear gloves and if in doubt double up double up your gloves once you expose these strips to air you have to use them Um, if they've been exposed to air and you put them in storage they are not going to be good when you come back for them some of the downsides with this particular treatment is um, there have been reports of absconding where the bees just basically leave they just bugger off that's it Um, there's also been reports of bee and uh, brood death and there's even been some reports of queen death having said that um i know that one of my teachers who also breeds queens um uses Mitaway almost exclusively and um, i don't believe she's ever reported any um level of queen death so it is something to keep in mind but hopefully it won't be an issue for you because it is a very small percent of the uh, reports formic acid is um safe to use with the honey supers on so this is great if you are a let's say a new beekeeper and you don't have any harvesting equipment and you want to just leave all the honey for the bees or you want to just take a frame or two every now and then and extract that you know the old-fashioned way this means that you don't have to harvest all at once you can treat with this product It is temperature sensitive. You must, 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 must read the label carefully. It will give you the temperature guideline. Um, I do know that it's ineffective if the temperature is below 50 degrees Fahrenheit or 10 degrees Celsius, and it's dangerous in high temperatures. Um, Any kind of very high temperature will increase your risk of losing bees. Another treatment which you might have heard of because it has been very popular in recent years is oxalic acid treatments. This is what is sometimes referred to as a mechanical kill, uh, which basically means it has an immediate effect. It doesn't linger within the colony. The most important thing with this treatment is that your hive needs to be broodless, no babies. If you use it with babies, the babies will die. Um, Also, uh, there's two ways of application. There is a vapor and there is a dribble method. Now the vapor method is considered to be a lot more um, efficient and uh, effective, sorry, Uh, but it's very dangerous. You need to wear a correctly rated respirator mask. Do not cheap out and just get like a little hospital mask. You need a properly rated respirator mask. This stuff is very dangerous. It can form crystals in your lungs if you breathe it in. I believe it's been connected to um, cancer. Please be safe, please get the appropriate equipment. Uh, One of the downsides as well is because you do need special equipment, um, not just a mask, but other safety gear and the actual uh, tool to vaporize it. It can be a little bit more expensive than other forms of treatment. Now the dribble method um, is kind of what it sounds like you just dribble a liquid of oxalic acid through the hive and I have read that it's not as effective and it does seem to have a much larger margin of error of either too little application or too much which can be harmful to the bees. Oxalic acid is usually um, most effective as a late fall application when there's not as many brood, and um Something to keep in mind is that if you're wondering how you get a hive to be broodless, you can cage your queen for 14 days to reach that broodless state. Um, This is another treatment that is not approved for use during a honey flow, and so you must remove any honey supers. Another treatment is something called HopGuard. It um, It uses an organic acid derived from hops. It can't penetrate capped cells, so it's treating the any mites that are on adult bees. You apply strips between the frames, much like um, the, the application method for apovar. It is said to leave no residue in honey. You must apply it to a broodless hive. So again, you want to you know cage your queen and get to a broodless state before using this treatment. There's actually a really great article about, um, HopGuard 2 by Randy Oliver at scientificbeekeeping.com and I will share his website on my blog. Um, he tested this product and compared it to the original HopGuard and it's just a really, really good article. Um, I would definitely recommend reading it if you're considering this treatment and, um, I did a little bit more reading on it, aside from Randy Oliver, and uh, it seems like this is not considered as effective of a method of treatment as either like oxalic acid, formic acid, or apivar. So keep that in mind. Um, another treatment method is uh, Thymol, which um, is most popular under the brand name Apigard. It's a slow release, Formula. It works best in temperatures above 25 uh, C or 77 Fahrenheit. It has been approved for organic farming by the European Union, who actually have stricter um, rules in place than the US right now in terms of what can be organic and what isn't. So I think this is why um, Apigard has become quite popular. According to Randy Oliver, once again at scientific beekeeping.com there is some brood loss with this method. Um, Uh, I have read that it is safe to use with honey supers on but you don't want to leave them on because it has a very strong smell and some people have said that if they accidentally left their honey supers on and then treated with thymol um, that the honey tasted like Listerine afterwards so um, yes I would definitely remove the honey supers to be on the safe side um it is temperature sensitive so don't use it below 60 degrees fahrenheit or that's 16 degrees celsius as it won't evaporate and you also shouldn't use it above 105 degrees fahrenheit or 41 c as then it will evaporate too quickly and you're not getting the um full level of the treatment that you need this is something that i'm actually considering for use next year Um, i like that it's been approved for organic farming I do like that it's basically um, uh, it's a, a naturally occurring chemical. I would like to definitely experiment with this. I think it could be interesting. Um, so watch this space. Maybe I'll have a review for you at some point next year. Um, something else that you can do um, in terms of um, Varroa mites is prevent them. Now, you can't fully prevent Varroa in this world that we live in, this post Varroa world. But there are things that you can do to lower your overall mite load. And one of the first things that I found during my research was this, um, there's been a lot of work put into honeybee strains that are resistant to Varroa. So honeybees that have that um, hygienic behavior that I talked about earlier, about being able to detect the mites in the cell and pulling them out. Um, Russian bees have demonstrated some of this behaviour and some people are now keeping Russian bees and that's something I'd love to do a podcast on at some point. Um, I'd also love to find someone local who keeps them because it's a bit different to how we keep our uh, European honeybees. And then you might see something called VSH Varroa Sensitive Hygiene Bees. Um, these are particular lines that are being worked on and are being recommended for people who want to um, have some kind of varroa resistance in their hives. So that's something you could look into, particularly if you're looking to requeen a hive. Maybe you could get a um, VSH bee or one of these you know, bee strains that seems to be resistant. Another thing you can do is a Midsummer Split um and or a brood break so in terms of the split um i've seen this be recommended as just kind of a good management practice anyway um it might not work if you have a slow building particularly a first year colony that is just getting getting its little legs under it and it's it's not building as quickly as you'd like to see Um, so do keep that in mind don't split a hive that you're already concerned is too small you really want to split a hive that is healthy and has a good population so the idea with this in terms of being preventative is that when you literally split the hive in half you know take half of the um, frame so let's say it's um let's say it's two deep supers so take one super the one with the queen in it and move it to a new location and set that up as a hive and then put the other one in the original location, you know, put the baseboard on and the lid and all that kind of stuff. And now you have two. And the idea is that when you do that, you're not just splitting the population, you're also splitting um, the mites. So 50% roughly of the mites went with one, the others went with the other. Now, what you can do during this split is you can also cage the queen. And this will mean that you have a brood break which will allow all the capped pupa and therefore any capped mites that are hiding down there to emerge. And once you are broodless, you can then go ahead and you can treat the hive with any of the treatments that I mentioned above that require a brood break. Um, So if you do this three week break um, and then a treatment, you can then release the queen. She will take another week to start laying eggs again and then it will be about a week until the brood becomes sealed. So you're looking at about five weeks to, um, for all of the mites to emerge from any cells and for you to treat them. Meanwhile, the queenless half of this split is going through a natural brood break as they raise their own queen. And hopefully if you let them raise their own queen, you, she will have access to strong local genetics either in the form of drones from other beekeepers or from wild colonies or you could requeen with a varroa resistant queen so you have an option there. The benefit of this method is you get two strong colonies with minimal mite loads or maybe none after treatment and two vigorously laying queens. So the idea being that because you got rid of all the mites that you could, the bees, the new generations of bees that emerge are well fed and they have low to no viral loads. What you don't get with this method is a lot of honey. So unless the hive that you split was like a super honey producer, you're gonna be slowing down their production um, by both dividing their resources and making them work hard you know, to raise a new queen. Um so this basically means that as you go into winter just keep an eye on both of these colonies you know make sure that you either left them enough honey you return honey to them or you just feed them very aggressively in the fall so that they can really build up those stores again um before winter hits Another preventative method is drone brood trapping um I just refer to this as drone comb and it's something that I did this year And as I mentioned um varroa mites they prefer drone brood so what you do is you add drone comb which is basically a frame and the kind of guidelines that start the bees building comb from our frames are made larger so that would be um, encouraging them to build drone cells and you pop those in the hives and um, research has shown that during the active season a healthy colony will allow up to 10 to 15 percent of frames to be drone combs so absolutely take advantage of this Uh, put those drone combs in let them build it and the important thing with this though is that you need to stay on top of it you want to check those um, combs carefully and when most of the cells are capped i've heard about 80 percent you need to remove it and freeze that frame Um, what i like to do is i freeze the frame that kills the bees and it kills any mites in there and then I take the frame out and I put it in my chicken coop and my chickens like clean it for me they just and they love it and again you need to really time this carefully because what could happen is you basically have said okay here is this drone comb go ahead build all these drones which we know that mites love and then all the mites go in and all the mites you know do their gross little incestuous orgy and more mites come out of it and if you don't take that comb and freeze it before the cells start opening again and the bees emerge you've basically just created your own little mite bomb and you've pretty much just been breeding mites so this is not recommended for people who can't reliably get into their hives every like 10 days or so um you know i was always taught inspect your bees every seven to ten days and that really helps you stay on top of things like this it's also um a method that might not always work in the sense that sometimes your colony might just not draw drone comb and part of this is because drones aren't the priority of a hive um they are you know as i've described them they're basically the sperm of the hive so they are important but they're not as key as the workers who you know are needed to um basically do everything um and the babies and so um because drones aren't a priority it means that if you're going through um like a drought or like very very heavy rain so that the foragers you know can't get out and get nectar if there's been pesticides applied in the area and that's having an effect on your bees if you're in a pollen or a nectar dearth for instance all these kind of stresses um a hive might say well no we don't we don't have the luxury of building all this drone comb and and you know producing all this sperm right now we need to focus on what's really important we need to focus on the workers and you know taking care of our queen and getting food in so we don't all starve to death so if you do try this method and you don't um you find that your hive will not draw the comb then I would recommend doing like a full inspection and trying to figure out, you know, what might be affecting this, what's going on with your colony. Um, and then from there, I would just try and figure out how you might support that, that colony. So I wanted to mention something that um, you will see a lot. It come up in books in terms of um, varroa mite treatment. And it's uh, IMP, or I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm sorry, that was a um, a typo. It's IPM, Integrated pest management and this is basically um it's basically what i just talked about and the idea is that with um integrated pest management is that you begin with the safest um possible kind of options available to you to deal with pests and you progress from there all the way through to what could be a potentially harmful like pesticide in in severe cases so it, this includes things like the preventatives that I discussed, mechanical methods of like trapping. So like for hive beetles, you can, you can trap them yourself. And then finally, treatment. Uh, you know, starting with um, what might be considered safer treatments, and moving through to treatments that can be harder on the colony with like a higher bee loss or whatever. And I just wanted to mention it because it's something that you'll see a lot and um, it is kind of an important concept. So again, that is um, IPM, Integrated Pest Management. And that's, that's kind of how I've been approaching things. You know, I, I started my, my hives off with the drone comb Um, You know I've kept an eye out for um, other kinds of pests and then I've been um, you know doing my mite checks and when it got to a point that I was at a threshold level then I treated. I wasn't just okay I have to treat because it's I don't know June or whatever. I made sure that I knew what my mite levels were and I used those as a guideline before I went to the synthetic chemical treatment. Now I do want to talk about just before I end this and I know it's getting a bit long I was considering doing this as a two-parter but I think we can we can bomb through it (laughs) Um, you're going to come across something when you're reading about Varroa um, and that's the concept of being treatment free and I'd actually love to do just a whole lot more research about this concept and um like a whole episode about it because there's just so much to unpack with this but let's just kind of i'm going to try and keep this as short as possible let's just um unpack this as quickly as we can so what is treatment free and is it even possible to be treatment free so part of the reason i want to do a whole episode on this is that um you know i i looked at different sources for this and i couldn't find a clear definition of what it means to be treatment free Uh, because it looks like within the community of the beekeepers who are treatment free there's no um agreement about what exactly treatment means and so by this i mean that um some people who consider themselves to be treatment free will use preventative steps like the um the drone comb but they'll they'll never apply any kind of treatment so whether it's um, a naturally occurring treatment like thymol or a synthetic compound like apivar that's that's where they draw the line i have also seen people who say that being treatment free means doing absolutely nothing to help your bees which includes feeding them Um, these people say that we shouldn't do anything at all that interferes with the bees so there's no feeding them syrup there's no feeding them sugar there's no pollen patties there's no um candy boards or um insulating hives to get them through winter absolutely nothing it's just you pop the bees in your hive and then you basically leave them to it um and i mean to me that's again i'm a i'm a newbie. I'm not trying to talk for everyone I'm just basing this off I've read but that to me is silly because um and makes no sense because the argument is that you take the bees you put them in your hive and then not doing anything to help them is natural but we don't keep bees in a natural setting our hives are set up for our convenience not the bees convenience it's very very different to live inside a langstroth or a top bar hive than it is if you were a bee living in a um hollow log or um you know even in the siding of a house it's totally different things um so that that doesn't make sense to me and um in this you know post varroa mite world is it even possible not to treat for varroa because varroa is basically everywhere and you know, the short version is I'm not convinced that it is possible. Um, I did find a really good article on thought escapism called Treatment-Free Beekeepers Give Varroa Might-Free Reign," and I'll link this on the blog in full. Um, I really like this article because even though it has kind of a you know, lashy clickbaity title. It actually um, provides citations for all of the author's points, um, including links to all of the sources used. And those sources are uh, primarily scientific. They are not just um, personal anecdotes. They are from European and uh, US studies on beekeepers, both hobbyists and what's and commercial um, different treatments that we're using and um, mite levels so you know it's quite a lot of very um, scientific carefully performed studies that this author is referring to so in short um, it seems like from what i have read that treatment-free beekeepers believe that if we refrain from treating varroa honeybees will steadily gain resistance to varroa um, in a more natural way as if the two had co-evolved together. Um, In fact uh, Thomas Seeley's book that I referenced earlier The Lives of Bees um, addresses this issue and um, at the conclusion of his book he recommends 14 things that we can do to cultivate healthy colonies and the final recommendation is actually not to treat varroa but before you all run out and throw away your treatments and your mite checking kits and decide that nature's going to run its course, not what Hiddy recommends is not just leaving Varroa free reign to absolutely decimate your colonies and those around you. And this is so important. You as a beekeeper, you don't live in a vacuum. Even if you live in, I don't know, the middle of 500 acres somewhere, if there are trees anywhere on your acreage then you can affect wild honeybee colonies. So even if you don't have neighbours who are beekeepers you can affect those wild colonies and we know that disease moves between our kept bees and those in the wild. Your mite bomb affects my hives and vice versa and we all have a responsibility to the wild colonies and the wild bees that we share our land with. So i really think that um thomas seeley says it best himself so i'm just going to quote him here so to quote him directly if you pursue treatment-free beekeeping without paying close attention to the mite levels in your colonies then you will create a situation in your apiary in which natural selection is likely to favor varroa mites not varroa resistant bees to help natural selection favor voa resistant bees you need to monitor the mite levels in your colonies and kill those whose mite populations are skyrocketing long before those colonies collapse from heavy infections of viruses spread by those mites end quote and this is the key point because this is something that i did see when investigating treatment free people who are just leaving their hives be and letting them die from varroa infestations time after time after time, you are not breeding resistant bees, particularly if you are using the same stock over and over again. If you're raising your own queens from the stock that died, if you're letting your bees raise their own queens from eggs that originally are from the hive that died, if you keep buying from the same nuke seller or package seller or whatever, you are not breeding resistant bees you are only helping the mites and if you're doing this and you refuse to test for mite you are part of the problem and you are infecting colonies around you you are basically becoming ground zero for varroa mites in your community and that's not being a good neighbor so to quote tom seeley again if you don't perform these preemptive killings then even the most resistant colonies in and around your apiary can become overrun with mites and die, in which case there will be no natural selection for mite resistance among the colonies in your apiary. If you are unwilling to kill your colonies with dangerously high mite loads, then you'll need to give them a thorough treatment with a miticide and replace their queens with queens of a mite resistant stock." so this book I mean I just kind of I read the chapters um that were relevant to me while putting this episode together and it just those alone blew my mind I mean I really just I need to sit down with that book and go through it and make notes and maybe do like a book report episode on it because it's it's very very interesting and uh it's really kind of about um Thomas Seeley looking at um, wild colonies that seem to be developing a resistance to varroa versus our um, kept colonies and then he tries to identify how we might be able to keep our colonies in a way more like a wild colony to help um, increase the uh, breeding chances of varroa varroa resistant bees. So um, if you can go out get that book I think it's worth reading. So now that I've sort of stepped off my little soapbox um you might be wondering what did I do well again first year beekeeper so the first thing that I did was mite checks and um early on when I was doing my mite checks I had quote unquote no uh, varroa and um really I just had undetectable loads and that's normal because I had nucleus colonies tiny tiny colonies they were just getting started if they had been swarming with varroa we would have had a problem but as I got closer to um, full, um, I saw that the mite uh, load increased, particularly in my most populous hive, and I decided that it was the right time to treat. And I used Apivar, which is the miticide um, I mentioned first. It's a uh, synthetic chemical, and part of why I use this is I actually <laughs> I got it confused with MiteAway Quick Strips. I'm not sure how. Um, I don't know how that happened because mitoway is formic acid; it's it's different. But I got it confused, and then once I had already bought Apovar, um I realized my mistake and sat down and and basically pulled up everything I could find about Apovar and compared it to Mitaway quick Quickstrips. And um, I decided that I actually was going to stick with the Apovar. and the reason why is um, my although I was concerned about how I'd have to pull the honey supers. This actually wasn't an issue for me because i don't have enough honey to remove um and at the time that i needed to do the treatment the bees actually hadn't even capped any of the honey so i couldn't even take the frames out freeze them and then reintroduce them so because this um the statement about removing the honey is because it's not been approved for human consumption But the fact that it leaves no residue means that it's safe for the bees. Um, I decided that that's the bees honey. I'll leave it for them. And I'm just going to mark the frames and mark the supers that I've used. So that I know in future um, that any honey that's on those frames or in those supers is for the bees. And I'll have to get new supers for my next honey harvest. And this might seem like a pain in the butt. And it kind of is. But... I still felt good about this decision because I just did not like what I was reading about, um, bees absconding, brood death, and even queen death of uh, the formic acid treatment. You know, I I have had so much bee drama, hashtag bee drama, um, that I, I just, I really don't want to risk losing my precious Queens. And, um, you know, the, one of my hives, Queen Marcus hive is small. And I just, I I didn't want to risk losing, any of her workers or her, so I really felt like, okay, we're gonna do this this year and next year we will um, plan a little bit better. Um, And actually, uh, Apivar is a six week treatment and in a week or two, I will be removing those strips and um, over the next couple of days, I'm actually gonna be doing a mic check. Um, I wanna see what's happening, but I am pretty confident it's working because, and I will share this picture on Instagram and on my blog, um, the colony that had the highest mite load when I pulled out the tray um, In the base it has a removable tray. I could see dead varroa and I took a picture so Clearly it's having an effect um, Hopefully I will get um, nice low mite levels and I'll test again um, Once I have removed the Apovar in a week or two So Thank you so much for sticking with me. I know this was a long episode. There is so much to go over. Um, I will say that even though the Varroa mite is a uh, complete and utter pain in the butt and um, has been responsible for so many deaths of colonies, um, you kind of have to admire the mite as a organism um, it is very good at surviving it's like a freaking cockroach Um, it almost feels like it would survive a nuclear apocalypse at this point but there is hope Um, don't give up just be smart read what you can do your mite checks use those mite levels to guide you in your treatments and then Do the treatments that work best for you, that work best for your apiary, for what you want for your bees, for what you want for, um, I guess, for your honey. You know, if you want to be able to say that you have truly organic honey, then you're going to need an organic treatment. You're also going to be needing anything that you feed them to be organic. But, you know, keep in mind things like that. Like these can affect what you want to market as. So do the research read the labels for all the treatments Um, and also what what is my current view on being treatment free? I think it's a pipe dream. Um, Thomas Seeley's book has shaken me somewhat in that uh, because of what he outlines as his recommendations but even though he says not to treat he's also clear that you need to be responsibly treatment-free. And what that means is if you detect those mite levels in a colony, you need to kill that colony. Um, And I guess that means like burning that shit to the ground um, before they can spread. And how many of us can do that? I have three hives right now. If I go treatment-free right now um, and those mite levels reach a high level, I could lose all three hives. Um, And on top of that, who knows how much they'll spread to my neighbor who's two doors down um not to mention the other beekeepers I know who are within a uh, 10 mile radius that my bees could potentially travel it's just not something I can do um and there's also a lot more into it than just don't treat um like i said he has 14 recommendations and some of those things are things like we need to space our hives further apart but he points out that for most of us who don't have huge amounts of land that's not possible uh he also has a um a whole chapter about the um the microclimates inside of natural colonies all these things are what's contributing to wild honeybees building resistance and if we can't mimic that exactly if we can't offer the same things then the response to just not treat and to not keep an eye on our mite levels that's no response that's just burying our head in the stand uh, we need to think about our neighbors we need to think about our wild colonies and we need to be as responsible as possible and i'll be honest i am a little concerned that uh, people who are treatment free will read that recommendation by Seeley and say look we were right we can keep letting our colonies die and they'll just completely skip over the whole section about how if you let your colonies die time and time again you're just breeding Varroa you're not breeding strong bees Um, so I do hope that um, you know if you really want to be treatment free um, please read Thomas Seeley's new book Please read his recommendations and please, please might check. I mean, at the bare minimum, just might check. Um, If you are right and you should be treatment free and we all should be, say, then your might levels will demonstrate that. They will be um, the proof that you are right. So at the bare minimum, I hope that if you are keeping bees right now, whether you are treatment free or gung-ho treatments, I hope that the key thing that you will take from this is please might check don't uh just treat because um we don't want to build any more tolerance to our treatments by treating every month without knowing whether we're actually um suffering high enough mite levels that justify that treatment so please mite check be responsible think about your neighbors and just keep reading and keep practicing and keep listening there's so much information that's coming out now about varroa you know a certain section of um, biologists have really turned their faces towards it and like with Dr Ramsey I mean just amazing new research is coming out and we just need to stay as updated as we possibly can so please keep learning uh, you know keep reading um, and then you know keep tuning in and if I hear anything um, my husband is wonderful as a biologist he has access to papers that I don't and if he comes across something new or if he stumbles across something to do with honeybees or any native USB he sends it to me and I get to go over it so if I come across something interesting I absolutely will share with all of you. So this was a really big topic to um, address but it was absolutely fascinating and I actually feel like uh, I learned a lot of new things I clarified some existing concepts and I even changed my mind about a couple of treatments so I hope that um anyone who's listening are you out there are you listening (laughs) um i hope that you got some kind of benefit from it as well um so thank you so much for listening as always uh feel free to reach me at um homesteadhensandhoney at gmail.com you can find me on instagram at homesteadhensandhoney um, and on twitter at homesteadhens As always I will put a link to my website which will have um, the sources that I mentioned today both the books and any kind of websites or articles that will be on my website and I will put that in the summary um, or the, um, the podcast description so you can find me that way if you found me through my blog thanks again for listening tell your friends have them download or you know write me a review somewhere I am on um, Spotify and Google Play right now and I'm looking into iTunes and iHeartRadio so if you do listen and you can leave me a review please do and you can also find me on Facebook now I have a page Homestead Hens and Honey on Facebook so check me out like it and um, you know just keep checking in with me and seeing what's going on here on the homestead So as always, thank you so much. I will talk to you next time. Um, Oh, I am going to be switching to doing an episode every two weeks. So I won't have an episode next week. It will be the following week. Um, I do have some other projects, including um, my home business um, with the reptiles. And uh, I just need a little extra time so I can really, really work on quality episodes for you guys. So I will talk to you in two weeks. And remember, hug your hens and then wash your hands. Bye-bye.